for a long time in my recovery path, I made my recovery contingent upon external factors. Like, oh, if this person changes, then I'll be different. If this, you know, if this situation gets better in my professional life or my love life or whatever, you know, if I lose weight, gain weight, you know, like once this thing happens, then I'll be better. Um, And what I found is that actually, like for me, recovery began when I made an unconditional commitment that no matter what was happening outside of myself, like inside of myself, I was determined to choose life and determined to choose love. It's Uncommon Good, the podcast where we chat to ordinary people doing uncommon good in service of our common humanity. I'm Paul Eries. Y'all, I am delighted to bring you my good friend, Darylise Lyons. She is a comedian, author, podcaster, storyteller, and actress, a five-threat woman. Yeah! Her work has been featured on the Risk Storytelling Podcast and in her very own TED Talk. She is the co-host and creator of the Demystifying Diversity podcast, which debuted its third season this month. And there is a companion book and workbook of the same name. And I might have a little bit of quoting in both. Yeah, I was so grateful to be on her podcast. Check out my episode there as well. A quick content warning off the top. We do talk about abuse. We talk about disordered eating. We talk about recovery. We talk about Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. So if these things are not right for you to listen to, feel free. Switch this one off, and we'll catch you in the next one. We go on to talk about finding joy in recovery, negotiating biracial identity, the promise and limitations of empathy, managing chronic illness, the spirituality of wellness and wholeness, and using principles of improv in the workplace and everywhere else. This was such a fun and incredible conversation to have with Darylise. Please enjoy. What, uh, I, I, water, water is so important. I mean, so important. Right? Yeah. Our bodies are like, I don't know, some really high percentage of them. I'm not going to quote cause I'll be wrong, but yeah, the it's like 70 or something like that. I don't know. I don't remember a lot, a lot of water, a lot of water. A lot of water. Um, <laughs> So the the two things that I take from that one, I'm so glad someone else is good at being wrong because like I feel like I am the grand master after so many years. If there's one skill I have perfected, it's that failing and failing spectacularly, um, <laughs> and and also um, the knit stitch because like that was like my only lockdown hobby. So like failing and like like the easiest stitch in knitting, like make a, make a reality TV show about that. And I will like win my like recording contract or, or like catch up on my IRA from all the years that I've lived my fun, poor young adult life years, except I'm not young anymore. Um, (laughs) Yeah. You know what I love about that, Polly? I I was thinking about my own um, and yeah, I'm, wrong at like multiple times a day in fact if i were to quote you how many times i'm wrong i would be wrong about that so i'm wrong a lot um and and also i tried to develop covid hobbies and i am 
the worst at hobbies. Like I tried to, to take up coloring and I got so bored. I'm like, ah, why am I spending my time like coloring, you know? And then I tried to knit and I can knit, but I would get bored after like four rows. And like, I just could not, I made jewelry for like a week. And then I, oh. I, I like, I was the worst at hobbies. And so I just had to quit and, and realize that for me, like binge watching Netflix reading a bunch of books, dancing around my apartment, like going for long walks, listening to podcasts. Like that was, that's it. I cannot do something if it's not productive. It's a problem. I'm working on it, but yeah. <laughs> like, it doesn't, if I don't have a tangible result that, uh, that I can look at, like it's, it's hard for me. It's hard for me to be a person. I don't know what that is. I mean, it it could it could be like I'm so glad that you're I'm so glad that your your vice is productivity over something else like tax evasion, cocaine, or trying (laughs) to advance election conspiracy theories. Like, (laughs) it's a good problem to have, I suppose. It is, I suppose. Yeah, it annoys people. The people who are closest (laughs) to me are like, "What is wrong with you? You know, sit down, (laughs) take a break." Um, But yeah, unless I'm not feeling well, it's hard for me to like do nothing. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I want to pivot a little bit. Um, one of the, uh, one of the questions that we always start out with is what sorts of things, people, ideas inspire you and, and, and like help, like keep hope, imagination and possibility going, especially like when the chips are down and morale is low. Like, Yeah. That's such an interesting Thing. I I think because, you know, as we were talking a bit about productivity, like one thing that inspires me that is intrinsic, I would say, is that I feel very unhappy if I'm not working towards something. So like, even if it doesn't, even if that thing isn't going to pay off, even if it is disappointing at the end, even if I finish the project and like, there's not an editor who wants it or it, you know, it fails miserably or whatever. There's something for me, I derive great value out of work. And I would say that probably one of the models that I got from that was, or that I got that from rather was my mom. She's, Mm. I grew up like with a very, she's a very strong work ethic. Um, Mm. And so I would say that I always just saw that, modeled and for me some of the thing that that gives me value is the act itself rather than the result tell me what your mom was like yeah well so the cool thing is my mom was a single mom um Mm. until i was 11 and so she was really resourceful i mean she still is really really Mm. resourceful um she wanted to be a stay at home mom with me. Like she was like, you know, I really want to be able to see you every morning when you wake up and put you to bed every night and all that stuff. And so at a time I was born in 1983. Um, and so at that time working from home was not as popular as it is now. I mean, I, I looked at it, it was like certainly less than 10% of the population (laughs) worked from home, um, in the 1980s. And, and my mom, so she did things like she nannied for a family and she took bookkeeping work into the house. And she like, um, did some editorial work like from home that she could do when I was sleeping and napping and all of that. And so I think I got this really, um, it wasn't just that I saw her like going to work every day. I actually saw this person balancing, 
a work life with a family life. And so I, I, I think because of that, I've been really able to sort of look at like having these wonderful and dynamic relationships and also at the same time working and trying to like move towards goals while also keeping the importance of my relationships in mind. Growing up with your your mom, was that always here in Philly? Like both of both of us are recording from Philly now, or was oh, it somewhere yeah. else? Yeah. So you know, um, I actually lived in Connecticut until I was in my twenties. I, I grew mm. up in in um, Connecticut and then in, went to school in New York. I moved down to Philly in 2008, thinking I would be here for like one to two years. And it's been since 2008. So um, (laughs) yeah, no, my family's back up north a little bit. And uh, this has become home for me, but I did not grow up in this area. You've slowly been like making your way down the East Coast. So, <laughs> so um, w- uh, w- when are you moving to Baltimore? <laughs> never, never. Philly is home. Like this is the yeah, the city of sibling love. I love it here. Yeah. <laughs> is there anything that yeah that that idea of like philios right um, from from the Greek the the brotherly like sibling sibling love. Um, is there anything in particular that stands out as just sort of like quintessentially brotherly, sisterly, sibling love about Philly? Yeah, I can tell you a story. I want to hear one of your stories, though. I really do. Like, I want to hear one of yours. So perhaps I can tell mine and then you can share one of yours. Um, So when I first moved down here, I live in Mount Airy. It's a very crunchy granola section of Philadelphia for anyone who's listening. (laughs) Um, And so when I first moved down here, I had been living in New York. And when I moved, it was like I moved during the winter. And it was this really weird time where there were a ton of snowstorms in a very concentrated period. And I had a car down here. But I hadn't like thought to buy a shovel. I was used to living in New York. Like I didn't know. And I went outside. My car is buried under snow. And the and just the people in the neighborhood said like, oh, well, we'll dig you out. Like they didn't even just offer to loan me a shovel. They, they were like, no, no, we're going to dig you out. And like I remember the people living next door to me said, um, if you need anything, I know you're you're living alone. Like if you need any food or you need any any um, supplies, like please just come next door. And I was so jaded because I've been living <laughs> in New York that I was like, what do you mofos want? Like I was so you know just like not expecting people to be kind and generous and 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 neighborly. But that's been that's been my experience since I feel like for me I've come to this <laughs> gradual way of awakening to like being willing to be kind to my neighbors and like offer to go to the store and get them something. And I recently had an upstairs neighbor have surgery and I'm like, oh yeah, sure. Like I'll come help you with your stuff. Like it's just a very (laughs) kind of cool place to, to, uh, to live. The, the particular section of Philly where I'm in, I know that not all sections of Philly are, are particularly filial as you would put it. Yeah. I, I, I think the thing that, that feels in general is that, and not every city is like this, and certainly not all of the neighborhoods of Philly are like this, but I, I do feel like there is a sense that, like, we have each other's backs because there there are a couple of statistics, I, th- I think, that are responsible for that. Like, we are the poorest big city in the, in the country, mm-hmm. um, it, meaning, like, lowest, um, like, lowest, like, per capita income, 
per si- for for a city of um, with a population of one million people or more. So that's a thing. So we have to look after each other, right? Um, but most of the na- I'll say one thing that I really appreciate. One most of the neighborhoods where I've lived you can say hi to someone that you are like walking past that you've seen in the neighborhood a couple of times and they'll say hi back, or at least they won't give you like the, the, like the New York sneer or um, <laughs> the New Haven, Connecticut sneer where people are just sort of like, or like they're, or like they have headphones in or, or, and just don't pay attention. Cause like a lot of times, even if I have headphones in and someone's like, Hey, like, like I, I even did it. Like I was, I was shopping for um like, like workout gear um, today. And like, I felt like I always feel so bad about like the people who are there to like greet you when you walk in the door, because like nobody really wants to talk to them or like hear about like what all the sales are, but you still just sort of like look up and be like, hello. Like, (laughs) Um, so that like, like everyone says, hi. Um, Like we're, we're kind of like a very scrappy sort of like place but i i think that there's something about the scrappiness of this city that is very embraced like um like when the phil's won back in what was it like 2011 20 2012 2013 like there was this huge like ticker tape parade that nobody planned for except for the city that bought like the millions of pounds of confetti um <laughs> when uh, when the birds won like there was that there was that idiot like who was photographed like eating like uh like like a horse manure from like a (laughs) like like a mounted like mounted company like from from like the police officers like really dumb little things um we have a gritty like whatever genus of sports mascot that is we have the philly fanatic whatever genus of sports mascot that is um bad things happen here per a former head of state and we just sort of embraced that. And then, and um, we also killed Hitchbot, like when it made its way, like all, all of these like Philly references, like, like awful, silly, but like very, very loving and local things happen here. Um, you know, I love though that you mentioned Gritty because when Gritty first came on the scene, Philadelphians were like, who is this? Like, who is this? We don't know you. This is weird. What do we want with this orange thing? And then people started to attack Gritty. And Philadelphians were like, oh, no. Like, this is our, you know, like, this is our jam. Like, you cannot say anything bad about Gritty. And now people love Gritty. So, like, there is a sort of, as you talk about that, like, that scrappy camaraderie, that feeling of, like, we are in this together. And, um yeah, I, I just, I, I feel very lucky that yeah. I landed here and yeah. It's a cool I think like there, there are small things that, that um, there are small things that I would say are, are more like meaningful impacts of, of the city that I really love. Like, um, like, like there's a, there's like an anywhere pass that any like senior citizen can apply for. And like their, their travel throughout the city is subsidized like by, by city tax dollars, which feels so good. Right. Like, there's there's that com- there are, there are small little commitments like that that I think are just practical ways that the city is constantly failing screwing up um, corporately um, but they're they're also like trying things that makes me feel happy to live here and also we're not ex- as expensive as Portland uh, yeah yeah right <laughs> yet anyway yeah totally um. 
one of the things that that you told me that which has recently become a part of my life and, and sort of management is, is management of symptoms related to chronic illness. Um, and you specifically mentioned, I might not say this right. You specifically mentioned that one that, um, that you um, are managing is Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's been interesting, Polly, because I've had it my entire life, but mm-hmm. it did not become clear (laughs) to me until maybe 2012. And then um, you mentioned your own experiences with chronic illness. For me, like it it was, um, there was a period of time where I was trying to figure out like what was going on and trying to chase different symptoms and diagnoses. So um, it's been actually a really beautiful thing to know like, oh, this is what's happening. Like this is explaining things that I maybe didn't have an understanding of. Yeah. for a long time um, with Ehlers-Danlow. And um, yeah, I would say that like so many things about my life that have been difficult, there have also been some beautiful things to come out of it. And mm. I I don't, like I wouldn't not want to have Ehlers-Danlow, even though there are times when it is, you know, it, it, it does impact my functionality or impact my ability to show up in the way that I would want to. Yeah. For, uh, for someone who's not familiar, can you, can you um, give us just a little bit of like backstory about what that means? Yeah. So um, I want to say that Ehlers-Danlow, it's a, there, it's um, a cluster of different symptoms and syndromes. So there's, I, there's like, I don't remember if it's seven different types or 13 different types. There's a ton of different types um, of Ehlers-Danlow and the way that it can manifest. And so Mm. I can really only speak to my own experience um, because it's what I know best. But there are, you know, a number of there's a lot of people that deal with um, things like, you know, constant chronic pain or who might have to live with mobility devices or Mm -hmm. who may not be able to work because of the way that their Ehlers-Danlow manifests and it comes with some associated conditions for some people. But for me specifically, um, what I have is a type of hypermobility. And so Mm. it's um, what allowed me to be like a really great yoga practitioner for a very long time because I'm super duper flexible. Um, The challenge is, is that just as I'm flexible externally, I'm also flexible internally. And so the way that I found out about it was in 2012, my colon shut down. I didn't go to the bathroom for five weeks and I was in the hospital. I know. Um, And the reason that that was possible was because, you know, my inner symptoms and tissue, like my tissues and everything were able to stretch out. And because of the hypermobility and the lack of elasticity, they did not go back (laughs) um, into alignment. And so for me, I deal with like digestive issues and OBGYN symptoms and a lot of sort of like it's a constant moving target. Um, But I would say that on a daily basis, I have found ways to manage my life and my time. And I just know that there are certain periods where like I might not be able to do certain things. Like if it's the first day of my period, I might not be able to schedule meetings that day or like get together with friends that day because of the way that it impacts me. Or like I might not be able to go out and eat a really big salad and then get on stage and do a performance (laughs) because of just like how my 
my body works. So I think I found yeah. a lot of ways to, to deal with it and manage it. And I'm lucky that I found some experts that have a, you know, um, a bit of understanding of the condition. And so I've modified, you know, I've modified my life in yeah. various ways. And then every once in a while I'll get hit with the day where I'm just like, Oh yeah. Okay. Not <laughs> totally like this is not going to be a linear thing. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been interesting, but I will say that it does force me to take care of myself in a way that mm. I, it might be hard to do given my emphasis on productivity. If yeah. I didn't have, yeah. like if I didn't need to take care of myself or slow down yeah. at certain times or didn't like require certain modifications, I'm not a person who tends to ask for help very well. I'm a person who tends to just go, go, go. And so it really, like it has forced me to be more humble. It's forced me to be more thoughtful, more intentional, more self-protective, more honoring of my body. So it, like, there's a lot of really great things that have come from this thing that has really challenging moments. I really, I really hear that. Um, because that, w- that's what I'm curious about and has, has been a common theme with guests who have recorded so far is that, um, this this sense of something that either at first glance or initial experience seems to be a curse um yeah. for 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 lack of a better better term for it but trying to find oh, i i hate the i hate the language of upside but but a sense of blessing or or an opportunity to expand a sense of a lot of times it's awareness mm-hmm. or the capacity to pay attention. Yeah. You know, I've come to believe that m- almost nothing in life is entirely good or entirely bad. Like I know mm. my, my, my mind wants to believe, right. That something is entirely good or entirely bad, but I've come mm. to find that, um, there is often like beauty in the midst of pain and there is often difficulty and challenge in the midst of some of the most exciting things in life. And so I think like the gift that I try to give myself and others is to utilize the word and right. Like this Mm. idea that, you know, this thing can be difficult and it can also, you know, create some new opportunities or some new awareness or, or, or what have you. And so I, I try not to get too, attached to like whether or not something is positive or negative because I don't, I I just, in my life that hasn't been entirely useful and it's, it's made me less open to, yeah, like less open to possibilities because I'm so focused on like, I want to change this thing that can't be changed as opposed to like, huh, well, this is a reality. And so what, what can also be uplifting about this and and for me that and it doesn't drift into the the realm of like toxic positivity which i think is a problem Mm. um because you know i acknowledge the downsides and the upsides or the you know the the challenging things and the uplifting things or however you want to frame it yeah yeah i like to like toxic positivity i like to call that ted lasso syndrome yeah versus um (laughs) versus um eeyore syndrome you know like just i i would so i would love to know like what the journey was like from like from to 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 having this sort of sense of where this idea of like holding both things in tension what 
the life journey was that got you to this point where you, at least for now, feel so sort of settled in that truth? Yeah. Well, and it's interesting. I love that you said at least for now feel so settled because I think it's one of those things for me, like in a balancing posture in yoga or something, right? It's like all these micro movements are happening all the time just to maintain the illusion of balance. It's like, you know, on days (laughs) when I wake up and I'm not feeling especially great, I'm like, what the hell is this? You know, like, I I wish it, but, um, and then the next day I wake up and I'm like, life is beautiful and I'm so zen, (laughs) you know? So, um, so yeah, in this moment, I can hold the expansiveness of, and I think it came for me, I'm recovered from an eating disorder. And I think that, um, along that beautiful and very challenging road of recovery, um, really realizing that like, I could not tell my story anymore in a way that was just all tragic, right? Like I had to mm. find ways to, to build self-love through like honoring my resilience and through looking at like Mm. what good things about myself and through not just like picking myself apart in this really negative way or not just like picking my past apart and not, you know, focus like acknowledging various traumas, acknowledging various difficulties. And at the same time looking at like, Oh, like what did I get from that? You know, and what kind Mm. of person do I want to be? And so I think, I would say that the recovery journey has taught me so much about how I want to look at life in general and how I have to look at life in general in order to not slip into that Eeyore syndrome. (laughs) Um, Just because of like, like my brain can go there, you know? So I, so I would say that that has really been a powerful reframing um, template for me that has then been applied to all areas of my life with like, you know, greater efficacy in certain areas than others, right? Or at certain times than others. Like it is so not linear and perfect, but I've learned a tremendous amount from the experience of like trying and failing. I'm putting air quotes here for anyone who's listening, you know, Uh, trying and failing over and over and over to recover and being Mm -hmm. able to like, you know, not at the moment, but in retrospect, connect those dots and be like, yeah, like, oh, I learned that from this attempt. And I learned this from this attempt. And I, you know, being able to kind of like salvage beauty from the wreckage um, is what I learned from my recovery journey. And then I can kind of take that into other areas. And my recovery is different. Mine wasn't an eating disorder, but like physical, like bodily and and, and mental and like cognitive recovery from from like house fire and car accident. I suspect, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, because again, really good at being wrong, trying to get a little bit less good at being wrong, but not succeeding there. Um, So getting better at being wrong all the time. Um, One of the things I I think that is sort of common when a person is in recovery, when the body, the mind, the the spirit, some some like integral part of the self is in a space of disorder where it is not functioning in a way that is healthy and sustainable. Um, When when some part of the self is in disorder um, in a way that becomes um, a parent to friends, family, perhaps even more publicly beyond that. Yeah. Um, the thing that I find that people love to do is to, is to want to get involved and to find ways to be helpful. Mm. Um, or conversely, want to um, 
want to distance and not get involved. Yeah. Um, since, um, since we're sort of on this conversation of like what the process of recovery is like, I wonder, can, and, 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 and prefacing also that this, that some of these things all have like profoundly different impacts on like the inward journey of recovery and all the work that, that we do in recovery on like in, in ourselves. But yeah. I wonder if there are specific things or people or, or other patterns um, that were helpful in advancing you in that process of recovery and then others that were definitely not helpful. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Like one of the things that I think the caveat that I want to give to this is like you mentioned um, in your situation, the house fire and the accident, both of which like were horrible and happened when you were an adult, you know? And I think that one of the things I have found is that their interventions need to be different when someone is a Mm. child versus when they are an adult uh, because of a whole host of factors. Um, and for me, the like the best thing that happened for me and my recovery was when as an adult, I was made responsible. Like, and that doesn't mean that everybody dropped me and said like, listen, like we're just done with you or whatever. Although many people did that like, and, and good for them. I, I don't begrudge anyone uh, feeling the need to do that. But um what I will say is that for a long time in my recovery path, I made my recovery contingent upon external factors. Like, oh, if this person changes, then I'll be different. Mm. If this, you know, if this situation gets better in my professional life or my love life or whatever, you know, mm. if I lose weight, gain weight, you know, like once this thing happens, then I'll be better. Um, And what I found is that actually, like for me, recovery began when I made an unconditional commitment that no matter what was happening outside of myself, like inside of myself, I was determined to choose life and determined to choose love and determined to take the actions. Didn't mean I was always going to do it perfectly. Didn't mean I was always going to be capable of doing it, but I was going to stop blaming other people for my challenges. And I was going to stop like making my wellness contingent upon their ability to help or not help or, Mm. or whatever it was. And so to answer your question, I would say that like a lot of people did helpful things and a lot of people did unhelpful things and none of it really made that much of a difference until I was willing and ready to get better regardless of what people did and didn't do. Because if I was determined to get better, like it didn't matter if someone said, oh, sorry, like we can't take you into this treatment center. We, you know, we don't have a job for you or we don't whatever, like, cause I was determined to get better. And so I was like, okay, well then I'm going to ask someone else. Okay. I'm going to try this other thing. Okay. I'm going to, because I wanted, I, I, some part of me like wanted to choose life over this incremental suicide that I was committing. And so, um, yeah, I just, I just find that for me, it's like taking personal responsibility while also knowing that it is, for me, it was impossible to recover alone, but I also couldn't make my recovery contingent upon one particular person or group of people helping. I don't, does that kind of answer your question? It does. What it feels like to me, because 
I, I think the, the thing that, that you're sort of identifying on, like keying in, is that what what can be helpful or not helpful, like it might not be like one specific thing, um, but but like the place where you are at in like where you, the recoveree, yeah. are in that journey of um, participating in that journey is really important. Um I think the uh, I, I think the next question then is in that process of recovery, like how like where does that sort of point of willingness of uh, you use the language of taking responsibility for your own recovery? Like, is there a specific moment where you remembered you just decided or is it something that was like more fluid? Like and and you 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 noticed like, huh. I responded like differently to like something a little bit, a little bit more differently, incrementally differently than, than I did the, the last time. Um, yeah. Can you, can you describe that sort of? Yeah. I mean, and I just want to backtrack because something that occurred to me as you were asking yeah. that question was that like, so I think that, and, and again, you know, I mean, I'm not an eating disorder expert. I don't know. I just know my own experience, but right. um to me, right, like that impacts on the mental level, like it's a mental health thing. Mm-hmm. There are behavioral components, there are physical and physiological components. We could certainly argue that there are spiritual components to the to the to that um, disease. And and I think what is what may be slightly different about something where there is a mental health component and a physical component versus something where it might be just like a physical recovery from something, which again, like a physical recovery can impact our mental health. So it's, it's weird. It's wonky, but like if someone breaks their leg and says, okay, I need to get my Mm -hmm. leg treated and they go and they start to get help and they start to rehab and they're working with a physical therapist, like there might be Mm -hmm. some setbacks, but they're probably going to be invested in their recovery throughout right like and maybe again like there's some setbacks and they're like oh like this is discouraging I don't know that I want to keep showing up because I'm not making progress but like there is there's a level of mental acuity where it's like okay we can we can continue to partner together whoever's helping the person and then the the person being helped and like and and get better you know and do the work and and see the the progress I think what's challenging Mm. about a mental health issue is that like you know, being someone who is recovered from bulimia, like I am for a very long time, like I had a disease lying to me in my own voice, like living inside of my Mm. head, telling me to do things or to not do things like based on these different eating disordered urges, you know? And so that like, Mm -hmm. so I think what's different about that is I would go to a therapist and I'd be like, help me, help me. I'm willing to do anything. I want to stop this. And they'd be like, okay. And we'd sit together and we put together a game plan and blah, blah, blah. And then like two hours later or 20 minutes later or whenever the session ended, I'd be like, you know, I think I changed my mind. Like, I don't really want to do any of that. Like, I'm going to go do this other thing over here. And so there was like this split self that was happening. And so, you know, to answer your question, I just think at a certain point, I started to recognize that other part as not being of my highest self. Like it stopped, like the disease would say something and I could say, oh, 
I don't actually have to act on that. Like, I don't have to believe my own mind, you know? And I think it reminds mm. me of there's that, that movie, A Beautiful Mind, right? Where like, yeah. there's the, like, there's, he's seeing things that aren't really there and it's different. It's it's a little bit different, but this idea of like, well, you know what? Like, it's not that they're not there anymore. It's just that I recognize them as not being real. And so I think for me, there was... Mm you know, it, and it wasn't a specific moment. It was a series of moments of being like, okay, maybe this thing isn't real, but I'm still going to act on the impulse or the urge. And I would act on the impulse and urge and be like, oh yeah, like that, that was a lie. <laughs> like I could see in retrospect that that was a lie. And so I think I just got better at recognizing it in advance or recognizing it at the time and not feeding that part of myself, you know, um, when it came up and then also just to like having a really great recovery network and some deep spiritual practices and doing a lot of like journaling and, and building a life, asking myself, what am I truly hungry for? And building a life that is, Mm. that is nourishing on a lot of different levels and not suppressing my feelings anymore. And like, so there, there was a lot that really went into the cultivation of a recovered life. Um, and also, you know, I do believe that I could, I could certainly have a relapse if I stopped like cultivating those spiritual practices and, and yeah. nourishing my soul and, and my body. And, you know, so there's, and there's certain things even today that like, I don't do, like, I just, I don't skip meals. I don't, um, mm-hmm. you know, there's certain mm-hmm. things I don't eat or I don't eat past a certain comfort point because I, like, I just. I, I don't know what would happen and I'm not willing to, to test those boundaries. So I think like, you know, you mentioned the chronic illness and the earlier Stanlow and, um, and in the same way, it's like, I live a life with some modifications as a result of being a person who's recovered from an eating disorder and I have a super full life and I love it. And because I'm in recovery or recovered or however you want to frame it, like I do all these awesome practices that help me to feed my soul and my spirit. I would, I would really love to hear about them. I'd love to hear about those practices. Yeah. Oh, I love that so much. You know, so for me, I wake up every morning and I journal um, Hmm. and I'm a writer. So I love to write, you know, like anything that I say that I'm going to do, like if someone's like, well, I hate writing. It's like, no, you don't have to do what I do. Like you can do your own thing. Right. But like, what are you going to, how are you going to feed your spirit? first thing, right? Like, so I wake up and I bring the best of me and the worst of me and the messy and all of that, like to the page and I journal and I meditate. Um, and then, you know, I often will do like a spiritual meeting. I don't always, or I'll listen to like some sort of really uplifting podcast. Um, I, I was dancing for a while. I loved that mm. so much. I think part of my, where I am right now in my earlier Stanlow journey, it was suggested to me that I slow down. So like now I'm taking these super slow walks or I'm doing some like gentle stretching. I'm not dancing or doing aerobics at this time. I'm sure I'll get back to that because I loved, loved that. Um, You know, and I don't, I don't do that. I don't do activity every day because again, as someone in recovery from an eating disorder, I'm like, I no, like I'm just not gonna, not gonna do that. Like it can't get too ritualized. Um, you know, I uh, I often connect with a few people, not too, too many, because I'm an introvert and I also value productivity, but I connect with yeah. a couple of people who I love probably every day. You know, I have conversations with people that I love and then um, 
And then I carve out space and time like to do things that are soul nourishing. So I'll go see a show or, you know, Mm -hmm. I do comedy Mm -hmm. improv and laughter really feeds my soul and my spirit. Um, Sometimes I'll go to like a yoga class or I'll go to a spiritual thing or I'll go stay at a, recently I went to a a retreat center, you know, for a little while. And so like, I just do things to get, to get away and unplug. and then I also, I like to journal at night too. It's not as long as my morning journaling, but I'll like kind of look back over my day and say like, okay, huh? Mm. Like just checking in, what am I really grateful for? Where did I screw up? You know, like what, is there yeah. anything that, um, that I might want to do differently? So that feels really important. And then another thing that I've started to do that is so helpful for me because I do have this like relentless urge to do and to be productive that I think is somewhat healthy, but it's also probably comes from a place of feelings of inadequacy or what, I don't know. It comes from like old, old stuff. And so I've started to like make these little to-do lists that are short and small because I used to operate with Mm. a massive to-do list. And then I would cross things off and I would feel like, you know, okay, of the 40 things, I only got five done today. And so I'm a failure, like, oh, I'm so overwhelmed. And so now I come up with a little to-do list of like four or five things each day. And, um, you know, I get them done and I feel like, okay, you know, if I get more done than that, great. But if not, I'm not allowed to feel bad about it. You know, <laughs> I'm not allowed to, mm. if I get my four or five things done and I don't feel like doing something else and I want to lay on the couch and watch a TV show or watch a movie, like I get to do that and I don't have to feel whatever those feelings are that would come up in me all the time that like, you're not enough or that like, if, if you just do more, then you'll be better or whatever it is. Like, so I've learned, I'm learning to manage my own energy and my own tendencies to be really hard on myself. Mm. Yeah. Um, one, um, couple of things like definitely like noticing the whole sort of like Protestant work ethic, like, 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 like feel some parallels also model minority, like to be a good, like, like, um, listen, listeners, I'm like beautifully, fantastically Asian and very fantastically trans, um, and, and male body at the same time. And so there's this, there's, um, like Protestant work ethic plus like model minority stuff plus like assimilation into like american culture stuff and it's like i i I 100 percent um uh hear you um can (laughs) can 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 most definitely tell my own stories like from like all of the like all of the ways i think that that we are told that like this is the way to be a good human Mm. Uh, and and I, I think that the subset of that this is the way um and and the reason that we are like good humans is because we're good americans and we're good americans because like we're productive and we participate in a society like where exchange of value is what determines like relationship yeah we late stage capitalism <laughs> i'm so curious i love that you talked about these various layers because I, like, do you feel a need to, or do you, or do you ever tease those layers apart? Or is it just like all these things exist simultaneously and they just are, or like, how do you navigate the overlapping of them? 
Yeah. Um, one, like really good therapy. Um, number one, like really good relationship with a, with a therapist to sort of like figure things out. And, and who is also like um, in her most fantastic sort of like, like Persian Sephitic, like grandmother voice, um, like slow down. <laughs> like, like you, you've, you, you picked that apart really well. Now pick one of those two pieces and pick that apart. Now pick mm-hmm. one of those two pieces and pick that apart. Now go down the other, the other route and like pick apart your little, like, like layer tree from there. Um, number one, um, because, and I, I think what the tool, the tool of that is, um, I mean, you've you've done long form improv, same as I have, and and I think one of the things that makes um, long form improv effective is psychological safety. Mm-hmm. the the notion The notion that improv is supposed to be a place where it's safe to fail, um, in my experience with improv, and certainly as is reflected with the failure of the Upright Citizens Brigade and the Second City and the Improv Olympic, um, that certainly. Um, um, cisgender like white men can feel very safe with failure um, maybe the rest of us a little less perhaps significantly less conversation for another day but the point being that the point being that I think what therapy does is provides a space that is supposed to be safe to explore questions like really deep questions of failure yeah. like and and so in in those places of exploring failure or 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 vulnerable places places that we've been told are are not acceptable things to have conversations about in uh, openly in public um but but are the the things that are like really deep and internal to and that help us like form the core of who we are as people um i think is really really that sort of willingness to look at the squishy vulnerable bits as, as we do so many weeks here on the show um, is, is the, the beginning of that, of teasing apart the layers and can you do it without teasing apart the layers and just sort of like, I mean, sure, I guess Um, it's certainly not my experience. Um, and it certainly seems like to me from the times that I did try to like tackle all of it all at the same time. Um, and my therapist was like, uh, uh-uh. um, and all, and, and the, the countless sessions that I paid for where like the really true work wasn't being done yet. Um, I, 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 I don't know that it is possible because we are such beautiful, like multifaceted, multi-layered like things um Mm. and and the i i I, at least for me the beauty is found in in detail and certainly in improv the funny is found in like naming great aunt ethel and then finding out that um i don't know great aunt ethel has like a prosthetic leg that also gets used to like stir the family soup on on for like sunday dinner i don't know whatever it's it's so interesting because i've i actually feel like for me it's been a both 
Mm. Like, so there were certain things that I was doing behaviorally that, that were, it almost, it didn't matter why, like it did not, it did Mm. not, you know, as I was being in, as I was in a self-destructive pattern, like both, it did not matter Mm. why I was doing that. And also knowing why would not have made the pattern any less attractive. (laughs) So it was Mm. like, I had to stop in order to then understand, you know, like I, Mm. and I think Mm. in a similar vein, like if someone is in an abusive relationship, right? Like often if they're trying to figure out like, why am I in this relationship? What do I love about this person? Like, why can't I leave? You know, it's like, there's a certain pragmatism that's like, get out, you know, just get out. And then you get out and look back. But I, I would say that I strongly agree with you that like the deeper work cannot happen without some level of self-awareness and self-understanding. And I also think that the surface work in some cases mm. and is super important because it's like allowing this reperpetration to occur, right? Mm. And so like if I was still mm-hmm. in a job that I hated, trying to figure out why I stayed in a job that I hated, like for me it was really important to leave that situation and then look at like, Oh my gosh, I'm terrified. Like what is everything that comes up for me when I am out of the situation that I hate that is bringing me pain, you know, and then maybe I can understand more about why, but I also like it because I've made the decision to choose something that is more authentic and choose something that is more self-loving. Like, I mean, you shared openly that like you are this incredible trans person and like, I don't know. I mean, did you know before making that, that transition before claiming your identity, like, did you fully and completely understand all of the ways that patriarchy was like suppressing (laughs) you in the past? Like I would assume that it was in the coming forward as your more authentic self that like mm. that maybe like that allowed a deeper level of exploration and i'm sure you probably had to do exploring in advance but mm-hmm. then like more could be revealed in this more authentic place yeah that's a re- that's a really good question for me too um i would say like there there are definitely signs and 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 hindsight is is a wonderful tool in this yeah. um and the nice thing about hindsight is it helps you be more like aware of other things like moving forward. But I can look and say and and remember a little bit of my emotional energy and think, ooh, something about this was not right. Like there were there were and 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 talking about talking about like trans and gender identity and and gender being so steeped in the ways um that that we are socialized as as children um and the way that we um can participate like that ourselves that we we are or are not comfortable participating in expectations on the basis of gender right um so when i when i look at like some of the most gendered spaces in my life in my childhood specifically looking at um scouting one um um friendships uh two and then um um media like things things i was supposed to like um because of um because of um my um my assigned sexual reproductive organs at birth um it's like oh yeah like um okay no thank you 
um, yeah. <laughs> sort of like I, I don't actually need to watch um, R- Rambo four. Um, yeah. yeah, not 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 my favorite thing. Um, don't need to participate in like the the annual like sort of like Boy Scout hazing initiation ritual. Like, um, sorry, no, thank you. Um, like just like like those 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 spaces where who we are is um is told to us um were were these moments where i think having the language now makes it easier to be able to make choices in the future the and and i think as especially in this space since um gender identity is something that that only in the past like 10 to 15 years has been safe to discuss in public without fear of physical immediate physical repercussion um and and potentially losing your job at least in in the area where i live um and the places where i work um like we're, we're only getting to the point where we can start having that conversation about this specific issue in the same way that in the in the past 20 years it has been increasingly safe and there have there is now federal legislation to say well you can't you can't be fired from a job for being any number of identities outside of whiteness right yeah Yeah. um and i'm sure like our language and our, our our capacity to process um multiple identities will continue to evolve um and i look forward to it me too. You know, what's really interesting. I was thinking about like, so I'm biracial and, um, and I've always identified as such. I've always been like, yeah, my mom's white, my dad's black. Like this is who I am. I'm biracial. And, yeah. um, and it was interesting. Cause when I was, I remember like when I was, I think I was like seven or eight years old and we were part of this interracial parents and children's group and they're, they brought in racial, like literacy educators to come and talk to us and like do a facilitation. And I remember like the facilitator going around and saying like, okay, well, like, what are, you know, like, tell us who you are. And I said, I, and all the other children identified, um, as their, uh, single like ethnic minority race, which is like beautiful. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. and I identified as biracial and the facilitator was like, well, no, like really, like which one, you know? Like, and I was like, no, no, like I'm biracial. Like I'm two things at the same time and the same person. Like, what don't you get about that? You know? And I, um, and it's so, what felt really interesting for me is that I always knew that truth. Like I always just knew that. And I always yeah. kind of maintained that. And I shared about it openly with people when they asked me about it. And, you know, and even though other people didn't understand, sometimes I was always like, well, that's really your problem, you know, and I'm grateful that I had that sort of modeling and that understanding. And I don't think everyone gets that modeling. And I don't think everyone gets permission to sort of to embrace themselves as themselves, not because of these social constructs that are kind of thrust upon us, right? Because I think there's a difference if someone says, you know what, I'm going to claim um, I'm, I'm going to sort of claim myself to be biracial or I'm going to claim myself to be black because that is who, that is who I am. And that is my lived experience. I think that's different than if someone's like, well, 
this is the box I have to check because this is what I'm told to be. And this is who society tells me I have to be and how I have to identify. And so the thing that I think is really cool is that I watched, like I watched society kind of catch up to what I knew at eight years old, you know, and I've got to see more and more kind of multiracial, more multicultural books come out. I wrote a book, you know, and, and being able to just see that transition in the external come about, like, and see people's internal experiences really changing for the better, I think, in the last 20, 30 years um, has been really, really cool. And I, and I just, I just always operate from the perspective of like, believe people, like when they tell you who they are, like believe them, you know, and I think society would be such a better place if, um, if we took people at their word, right. About who they are, about their experiences, about their stories, as opposed to like trying to get people to fit Mm. these constructs that aren't like, aren't really based on anything, you know, aside from like, I don't know, just these like mental constructs that make it easier to categorize people. That's categorizing is interesting. I mean, because I don't, I don't even remember where I heard it from. Um, but I think uh, it was, it was some, it was some like, I th- it was a lecture of neuroscience that I heard at some point. Um, probably while I was in seminary. Um, and like one of the things that they were, they, that they were saying was, um, one of the things be, we need, like in the way, the, the way that our brains are designed, we need categories so that we can process the incredible amount of information that, that mm-hmm. we, um, that we are by virtue of existing in the world that we are, that, that we're forced to live in. Right. Like our our brain can't possibly process like the the subtle nuances of every single person that we um, that we come across, every possible idea that we take in, especially like when those ideas like are very like deeply complicated and get into the space that you're talking about with belief and like motivation and purpose and goals and identity. Um, But. Um, I, I think the, per- the point that this person was trying to make is that those things become dangerous when we decide that we are going to make judgments about the level of human dignity that we offer someone else because of them. Yeah. Well, I think also, I mean, if we can understand that the categories are categories that we create for our own, for ourselves. Right. Mm. And that they're largely arbitrary because, Mm. you know, I I mean, depending on the society that a person lives in, depending on the, you know, the generation in which they grew up, depending on the Mm. family of origin, like depending on all these different structures, people evaluate and prioritize differently. Right. So like Mm. there might be one person who categorizes around race in a certain way that I do not. And I might categorize around like career and productivity in a way that someone else may not. And someone else may categorize around family and relation. You know, I mean, I'm a single person who doesn't have any children. And like, there are certain societies where like, oh my gosh, by so many standards, I would have failed to measure up. Right. Like, and there's, and, and so just, I think looking at like, okay, these are these, 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 these are constructs, like these are constructs and it's, 
this is what I've determined to be a valuable way of understanding, but it doesn't mean that it's the only way to understand. And I think if we can just kind of keep our minds open in that way, it's super helpful. Like I do a lot of work on um, teaching about unconscious bias and like the problem is not bias. like we're all of us are going to have bias. Like there is no way to eradicate bias. There's no way to eradicate categories. But if we recognize that like, oh, these are, I have made this mean something. It doesn't inherently mean something, but it means something to me. And then if we're willing Mm. to interrogate, like, why, why is that? Does, is this because of something that I actually believe? Is this because of something that was told to me? Is this because I was culturally conditioned? Like, I find that when we're willing to ask, and I love how you talked about like teasing things apart and getting a layer beneath the surface and and digging down, like when we're willing to really dr- drill down, Polly, I think that that's where people get the freedom to choose for themselves. Like, is this something that is even really important to me? Like, is this, do I really want to value myself in this way or value others in this way or devalue others? And most of the time, I think when people really interrogate like Mm. their beliefs and their categories and their mental constructs, what I have found in my work is that like, I don't know, probably 90, 95% of the time people are like, oh, this doesn't actually come from me and it's not actually important to me. And I'm willing to expand my mind beyond what I thought I want, you know, what I thought was possible. And I think, you know, most of us have a very, a very small sliver of things that like we actually, actually, actually consider to be non-negotiable values that are like, you know, that are just so important to us that we are, willing to like, you know, put a stake in the ground. And it's like, no, like I, I will not entertain a conversation with someone that does not agree with this point mm. point of view or whatever it is. But I, I just, I think it's such a small sliver of things that people feel that way about. Um, and unfortunately when people aren't willing to interrogate what drives them or why they think the way that they do, it creates these buckets of devalue, devaluation and dehumanization that I, I don't think really need to be there. What are, um, so yeah. And, and so you've done so much of this work around, around bias. What are the sorts of things that you see, um, that are, are the objections that people raised to doing this work of, of self-examination? Well, I think the primary overwhelming objection because people want to be, you talked about like good, right? And people want to be good. They want to see themselves as good people. They want to, you know, Mm. we we all have people that we love and we all want to, you know, and people that we care about. And so I think the primary objection is that people just think like, oh, this doesn't apply to me, right? Like this does not, Mm. this does not apply to me. It does not impact anyone I love. It is not necessary work for me to do because it's like those people over there, it's their problem. I'm not going to object to it, but like I got stuff to do. So why should this matter to me? And I think that for me, what I've found is that like when people can really see the impact to themselves, to their families, to their loved ones, um, it does create a greater space for empathy and for understanding Mm. with others. But I think a lot of people come at this work from like a, well, you should care about these people. And the truth is, is like, if you've never, if 
you know, if someone has never met someone that they think could hold a certain identity or they've never had those interactions across race, across culture, across gender, they, you know, it's like, well, why? Like why that, that person does not exist to me as a real person because I've never, I don't know them. We don't have a relationship, you know? And so I think for mm-hmm. me where I try to really intervene is like, well, first let's talk about like how might your biases be negatively impacting you? how might they negatively be impacting the people that you love? Like, let's talk about someone that you love that like maybe you have friction with because of a judgment that you hold about them or because of a judgment they hold about you. And like, let's talk about that. And is that relationship important? And how could, how might you be able to like broaden that relationship? And okay, well, can you see other areas in life where like, if you brought this same attitude into your workplace or into your social interactions, like what value might be there or, okay, so you have this one limited experience and everyone you surround yourself with has that same limited experience. Like, might you be a more innovative thinker if you surrounded yourself with the variety of people that thought in a variety of different ways? And so I think once people can really wrap their heads around like, oh, this is going to benefit me. And then they start doing that work, then their capacity for empathy expands and they you know, and it sort of becomes its own self-generating um, engine and there's a natural propulsion. But I, I think we have to really, especially in a country like the United States where you and I both live, like it is a very self-focused kind of like pull myself up by my bootstraps, American individualism kind of culture. And so I think like knowing that is important and in a different cultural context, you know, I might focus more on like, well, let's look at how this is really going to be for the good of your family or the good of the cult of the mm. culture or the good of the collective mm. because people are driven by values. Right. And so like, if I'm not supporting them in honoring whatever the values are, then it's, it's not helpful. It's not going to be a, a match. It's not going to be a fit and there's going to be resistance there. Hmm. That's, I I, th- I think the thing that I, I'm hearing about this that that in addition to just like examining like what the objectives actually are um, that that finding the space to get people to um, participate um, to 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 consent joyfully if, if such a thing like that yeah. um, exists is to, to figure out how to frame the benefit of doing like this this work that I mean, at least for me, it sometimes is very difficult and and has been in the past, sometimes profoundly uncomfortable, at least to get started with it. You know, it's interesting. I think because I come at, you know, you come at things with an improv background. I come at things with an improv background. I I love the ability to I I just I mean, I I might be in the minority saying this, but like, I feel like diversity, equity, and inclusion is play. Like we get to come Mm. together. We get to be like in this space with people who think differently and and have different Mm. life experiences. And like, so I just, and I actually enjoy constructive conversations, but you know, I, when I worked for, um, I used to work in finance and I um, was in an HR department and I remember like exit, conversations and when people had to be let go, like I would always volunteer to be the person that sat down with Mm. them and had that conversation of like, you know, this isn't working out. And like, how can I support you in finding something that's a better fit for you? And, you know, and like, I loved this conversation. So I do think there might be something about me that's like, I always want to, 
I always want to come into things from this like win-win sort of like mutual benefit yeah. perspective that, that I mean, this was in the days when hugging was allowable. I don't know if it still is in corporate cultures, but like right. I've never had a conversation with someone where it didn't end with like a hug and a thank you mm. and a like, oh, like, yeah, like I, I was actually really miserable in this environment, but now like I can see some possibilities and like, mm. thank you for sitting and troubleshooting this with me. And thank you for treating me like a person, you know, like my manager was really just so task oriented or whatever it is. So I feel like for me, it's never, I, I have never experienced this work being difficult, even in the moments where there has mm. been resistance or there has been, um, perhaps like where things have not gone smoothly because I've always experienced it as an opportunity to like grow and learn and mm. have a, a teaching moment for myself as well. Like I always want to learn. And so if someone brings yeah. something up that I hadn't thought about, or it has a level of defense, I'm like, Oh, like, tell me more about that. I'm so curious why you would feel that way. Like, can we explore that together? And so I, I don't know. I, yeah, for me, I find the work to be very, joyful and productive and uh, informative. But I, I think I, again, like, I don't know that everybody feels. that way. Yeah. And, and I, I think so, like some of the, the, the work of like doing like this sort of like self-searching and interrogation and reflection, the, I think, I think for, for me, um, the appreciation came from it, from like seeing the impact on my life and seeing how mm -hmm. my life changed and how like I became more settled and more comfortable in my own skin. And like those, those effects are great. Um, and I love that. Um, but when I look to like, like thinking, thinking about like me pre-therapy, me pre-improv, like, and, and a lot of the principles of agreement and like the, the beautiful things that can get created. Like when we lean into the, like the, the uncomfortable bits in a safe space, um, like those, like that, that version of Polly, like certainly was disinterested in, in that process. Um, like, be, and, and I, I, I hate, I hate the language of coming back to like trade and economics, but like, I didn't understand why that experience was valuable yet. Like, you know, why... I'm so glad that you framed it in that way and sort of slowed the conversation down because the way I took the initial question was like diversity work with others. And I yeah, think yeah. what you meant was like this twofold thing, right? Of there's the work that we do within ourselves and then there's the work that we do with others. And the work that I've done with others has always felt like a wonderful exploration, but yeah, because yeah. I'm an outsider. So it's really right. cool because I can see what's going on in them and I'm like, oh, this is exciting. Like, let's go deeper. Let's explore. Let's talk. And having said that, when I do my own work on myself, there can be a lot of resistance and there can be a lot of pain and there can be a lot of like, I don't want to, I've done enough already. Like I, like I'm sick of this. Like, why is this, you know, like, why is this thing that I, I understand where it's coming from, but why can't I feel any different yeah. about this situation? And like, why am I suddenly like feeling like I, I'm two years old and I'm not being chosen by my dad or like whatever it, you know, I mean, it's mm. just like old stuff. 
So yeah, for me, I would say that when I'm doing the work within myself, there are moments of joy and moments of love and moments of bliss. And there are moments of like, I don't want to, this sucks. You can't make me, (laughs) this is hard. Life sucks. And then you die. You know, um, it's, it's Mm. really just in the work with others that I find it to always be joyful. Um, but I, but I think that's because I have a level of detachment mm. um, in that work. Even though I am deeply invested in people, I also don't have to like live inside their lives um, ever. But you know, when we when we part ways, we've parted ways. You know, and and their stuff is no longer something that I'm going to absorb and carry with me. So I think, yeah, I would say for me, with myself. It, eh. <laughs> <laughs> not not quite as uh, optimistic all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, I Yeah, I'm just thinking about how sometimes, like, I just, I feel a responsibility to, not, not that I could ever understand someone else's experience in a way that is realistic to all of the life that they have lived in order to come to the place where they are when I have the privilege of meeting them. But I find myself like trying to understand the emotional lift. Like when I'm, when I'm in the pro in the position of facilitating the, um, the inception of a new idea, especially when it threatens an old way of being for someone. Um, yeah, I think I, it's, it's like, uh, especially like when I'm doing, when I've done this work around questions of gender and like how to make spaces more trans competent, trans yeah. safe and friendly. Um, there, there are those questions and trying to, trying to hold that space gently for people for whom this work is difficult. Yeah. I, I wonder um, though, like, because I love empathy. I think there's a tremendous amount of value in it. And I also don't know that it's always necessary to be able to support mm, someone. In, mm. And I think that sometimes what I found for myself is that like, it's important for me to know where I end and that other person begins. And like, I, mm. it is not my job or my responsibility to like hold that person's feelings or their process. Like it's just, I can just sort of lay out my own experience and I can share with them information and I can be human, you know, in my work so that they know that I'm a person just like them and I'm trying to figure it out, but I don't, I don't always have to step inside another person's shoes. And I think one of the things that's been really helpful for me in practicing like self-care because I, because it can be really hard, right? Like it can be hard to show up and really be there for someone and be in it with them and be like, okay, like I have to make you get this. And like, I, you know, in the future of this organization depends upon your, my ability to change you and all this stuff. And like, I think to kind of bring it back to what we were talking about with recovery, like for me, I feel like, okay, this person has to want to participate in their own process and their own sort of healing and their own recovery from the systemic forces of racism and, and, transphobia and homophobia and all the isms and the obias that, you know, are, yeah. are just deeply entrenched into our culture um, that exist within me too. Right. And so like, I have to, I, I sort of feel like today, 
I don't try as hard to like step into that other person's shoes because mm. I don't even want them in their shoes. Like those shoes are uncomfortable, you know, like, those <laughs> shoes are painful. Like I don't want to be in that, but like, how do I, yeah. how do I sort of support them in finding like shoes that might be a little more roomy and a little more comfortable rather than just trying to like step inside their shoes. Cause I have my own shoes. I have my own pain. I have my own struggles that I've navigated through. Some I've navigated fully through some I'm still in, you know, um, yeah. But I, yeah, like I've, I've found that when my ability to be super empathetic didn't increase my efficacy, but it depleted me. And so how do I like mm. show up as an effective practitioner, like as myself and also at the end of the day, know like, okay, I did my best and I answered their questions. And like, maybe my job isn't to plant a garden. Maybe it's just to rip up a few weeds or to plant a couple seeds. And maybe I won't see those seeds bloom, you know, maybe, maybe they'll bloom like, you know, the next training, or maybe they'll like, you know, this, this will spark a spark in that person. And they'll be more receptive to when they do see something on TV or when they do have an interaction with someone that, you know, in the past they would have judged a certain way, but their mind is more open. Cause I, I don't, I think the more I focus on like specific outcomes and results, the less, helpful I'm going to be, but also like the more burnt out I'm going to get. And I just don't want to burn out with this work. Keeping it going. Yeah. Yeah. And like slow. Yeah. Like all the practitioners I really respect. You asked earlier about like, who, who do I respect and who do I admire? Um, I've interviewed a lot of amazing people and like a lot of them will say things and I'm like, you are, you're insane. Like that you said that. I can't believe that you said that because they'll say things like, well, you know, we see this as like a 500 year project or we see this as like a 100 year project. And I'm like, what? Like, I'm not even going to be alive to see that. Like, what are you talking about? Like, that's not, no, it has to happen yesterday. Like people are suffering. Don't you get this? Um, and I found that for me, like being able to, to really like just know like, okay, yeah, it is, it, it might be slow. Like it might be slow. It might yeah. be more of a tortoise than a hare situation, but like, can I focus on sustainability? Can I focus on the fact that these micro movements cause monumental shifts over time? And there is an amortization of like interest to use that sort of financial language. But when it comes to everything in life, when it comes to the work we do on ourselves, the work we do in our relationships, the, you know, DEI awareness, the bringing goodness into the world like that, you know, and um, so, yeah, I, I try to focus on longevity, which is very hard for someone with my particular instant gratification, (laughs) Um, love, you know, love of instant gratification and, I found that, you know, to your point about joy, that like my ability to be joyful exists in direct capacity, like direct relationship with my ability to exist in the moment and just kind of look at, okay, well, what, what can I do now? Like, what can I do in this moment rather than trying to force things or force people to come along for the ride? Mm. Mm. What, what, what can you do now? Like in, in the space, like, yeah. And the and the long view, I think. Mm, 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 what a the long view. So what a beautiful. Yeah, I, I, I yeah, that that's just striking me because like, yeah, I, I mean, in recovery, that's one of the things that, that it's it's hard to lose sight of. Um, again, to come back because. Uh, 
like so many so much of the work that we're doing is focused on like how do i manage the symptom that i'm in in this moment and like so much of the work that we're doing is like how do i notice what i'm experiencing now and um and treat it so that it has less power over me in this moment so that i have the best shot at being the healthiest person that i can like in the next moment yeah well, and I love that you brought it back to that as well, because I would imagine, I mean, I'm not, I don't know what you go through. Um, I, I know that for myself, like to use the Ehlers-Danlow as an example, yeah. right? Like I am so much quote unquote better now than I was early on in my diagnosis, yeah. like yeah. a million times better yeah. overall. And there are days and there are moments where I'm very uncomfortable in the moment. And if I attach myself to like, oh, like I feel crappy today. Therefore, like I'm not getting any better. Things stink, you know, whatever. Like, so I kind of, it's a weird contextual dance because I always need to be looking at this moment and it helps me to have a frame of reference, like looking back at, oh, look how far I've come. And also looking Mm -hmm. forward and knowing that, where I am now, it might be that way two months from now, two years from now, 20 years from now. And it also might be better. Like it might be, you know, if I'm 40% better now than I was a couple of years ago, like maybe I'll be another 20 or 30% better a couple of years from now. Like, and so I, I think it's, it's a weird thing, but I also do believe that that applies to people as well. And if it's like, you know, oh my gosh, my, you know, my curmudgeon uncle who was like super rude and like made all these like horrible (laughs) comments, like now isn't making those same super rude, horrible comments. And like, look at how far he's come, you know? And also like, you know, he still does such and such. And like maybe a couple years from now, if we have a couple of constructive conversations, like maybe he'll be a little bit further along and I love him, you know? And um, so, yeah, I think just kind of taking that long view and also maybe sometimes looking at the past as a reference and acknowledging mm. the progress over time is helpful while also existing in the moment. So it's a, it's a very like strange and interesting dance being in the moment and and yes the looking looking at where we've been so i i want to um i, I want to draw us a little a little bit of a pivot um um i want to draw us um to that sort of longer view a bit um and one of the things i i think that helps us um has has helped people sort of guess in the past like talk about um where how we've gotten here is looking at like some of the like sort of like big picture, like values and traditions that we've held in the past um, and how, how many of those are still valuable and helpful um, today, even if they're only helpful because we know that those things are no longer helpful. I wonder if there are specific like points of like, like traditions or systems of belief that were like Mm -hmm. really important in the past like in in the space of like childhood that were raised as being like like the totems the values yeah. that we that we pivot around um and i yeah. and i wonder if you can reflect and say how many of them are still helpful now for for, for present day derelicts yeah so i think i had a really interesting journey with beliefs and values because 
I mentioned I was raised by my single mom um, until I was 11. And one of the things that she always taught me was to be a creative, independent, out of the box thinker and to ask Mm. questions. Mm. And that is something that I carried throughout childhood. And it made me like a really precocious, really cool kid. Like I'd be the kid who would sit at at the table with adults and be like, so tell me about how are you really feeling? Like, you know, like, do you, does your work (laughs) excite you? You know, like I would just ask these innovative questions, you know, and, and I, and I didn't really perceive a difference. I mean, I knew there were certain things that I was not old enough yet to do or that for various reasons, like I didn't, you know, I couldn't drive a car and I couldn't do certain things, but I didn't perceive there to be a difference in worth between myself and grownups. Like I was just like, no, like this is just a person who has more life experience than me. So I'm going to ask them questions because I want to know, you know, and, and also my mom would, um, like if she said that I needed to do something like, for example, Oh, you need to go to bed by nine o'clock at night or whatever. And I said, well, why? She would say, well, because if you don't get enough sleep, like you'll wake up tomorrow, you're going to be really tired and you're going to be, you know, drained, et cetera. And so I, I always felt like I had agency as a child Mm. and I always felt like my voice and my vote mattered and my opinions mattered. So that was something that I, I carried with me. And then my mom met and married my now ex-stepdad. And he came from a background that was very different, where it was like children should be seen and not heard. Like, do this because I said so. And so suddenly, you know, I had this value system that I had grown up with around like choice and agency and creativity and that like innovation is good and to ask questions is a good thing. And like, let's teach you how to think for yourself. And I suddenly was met with this person who was just like, you're a child and I'm a grown up and like I have value and you do not, you know? And it was yeah. really hard. It was really, really hard. Um, and then, you know, and then I think over time as a way of adapting to that, I learned to like keep secrets and to not mm. tell the truth and to manipulate and to, you know, just say I was going to do something, but then go do what I wanted to do or to like be defiant in these sideways ways. So like I, you know, I had that creative thinking, but I applied it in ways that were probably did not serve me. Um, and I was like a bit of a, like a, yeah, I was like a secret troublemaker, I guess I would say. And then, um, over time, like as I got deeper into recovery and deeper into adulthood and realized that like nobody actually has power over me anymore because of like, you know, that I was out of that dynamic. Like I, I returned to my original being an inquisitive person. And like, I mean, I, Now I make part of my living as a journalist and I write and like so much of what I do is asking people questions and like questioning the status quo and writing about like, you know, systemic oppression and all these things. And so I think, you know, that for me, that was one value that I started out with kind of lost over time and then came back to. And similarly, I started out like a super creative person and I was a writer and I, you know, I always wanted to like tell stories Mm. and, um, and then I worked in finance for a while, which was like, finance is great, but it was not like, that is not a realm where like storytelling and, and, you know, dreaming of the possible and like, yeah. you know, and, and, and deep contemplation with a pen was like, there wasn't, no, th- that had no value in that space. Um, and so then coming back to writing and coming back to storytelling. So I feel like it's been an interesting thing for me in that. I could probably name like three or four other things where it's like, I started with one set of values, got 
pulled away from them either yeah. because of something intrinsic within me or because of messages that I was told. And then I've sort of circled back around to them again. Do you want to name drop them? Oh, yeah. I would, I would sure. love to hear them. Yeah. So I want to say like love. I know that's probably a mm. weird thing, but I, I so valued love early on in my life. And then I learned that love is painful and it hurts to really open myself up to people and people die mm. and they leave you and all those things. And so I think for a long time I avoided love <laughs> and I avoided closeness and connection. Um, vulnerability is also like around there too. Like I, I valued that early on in life. And then I think I learned that like, oh no, no, it's not good to be vulnerable. It's not good to open your heart. But I have since revised those beliefs. And so today I'm capable of great love and great vulnerability um, in safe settings and with people that, you know, are mm. worthy of that, uh, of, of that. Um, and I don't mean worthy in that like people are more inherently valuable. I mean, worthy in that like if I, trust myself with them they will behave in trustworthy ways so yeah. yeah i would say love vulnerability um probably like the willingness to fail uh, i had um, a lot of that as a child and then you know adulthood rolled around and i was like oh my gosh i am solely responsible for paying all of my bills and i am solely responsible for doing all these things and like to live life as an entrepreneur, you know, how am I going to do that? But I think today I'm way more willing to risk failure uh, in the direction of my dreams than not. Sure. And, yeah. and also success. You know, I, I, I was, I think um, it's interesting, but I really believe that one's capacity to fail is tied to their capacity to succeed. And I don't mean succeed by anyone else's metrics, but I mean like success to me means like doing what you love and and yeah. trusting oneself and being willing to take calculated risks and yeah. etc and i think like i knew that as a child and was willing to try things that were an authenticity also you know living with an eating disorder for many years i don't believe it's possible to be bulimic and really show up in an authentic way because there were so many things that were happening mm. you know behind closed doors that were inauthentic and and so um, yeah, I, I think I got back to that and just like integrity and, and a lot, a lot of things that meant a whole lot to me when I was younger. And then I, I walked away from them for a while or felt like it wasn't safe to be that for a while mm -hmm. and then came back to it again. One last question. Um, what do you want the world to look like when you're done with it? Oh, yeah, I love that question. So I I think it's like it it brings up such deep metaphorical and spiritual questions for me because it's like will I ever be done with this world? Like and but um but I suppose yeah, when I when I go I just I would love for this to be a world where each and every person could show up often as authentically as they chose to show up right? Like that would be my ideal space, would be a space where people can just show up, shine their lights, let their gifts out, be authentically who they are, you know, wear their identities openly and in love. Um, and so I don't know that I have the capacity to bring that about, but I would love for that to happen in my lifetime for people to be able to show up as their true selves and, um, yeah. And just like love who they are and also 
contribute, contribute to the collective in a way that they are uniquely empowered to do because of who they are and what they've lived and what they've experienced. And so I would, I would love, I would love for that to be the the way that the world is. And I, I, you know, I don't know that it will happen in my lifetime, but I certainly would like to like do my part to bring that about so that when I leave the world is looks more like that than it did in 1983. (laughs) Thank you so, so much for, for being on the show. Oh, my hands are not in frame, but I'm doing like the, the crossing of the heart (laughs) thing. Um, um, what a privilege to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Polly. Who knew we'd go from uh, spring water to talking about, you know, like these deep things. And I'm so grateful and I'm really grateful um, that your listeners were willing to stick with us for this time and hopefully they got something out of it. Yeah, I think so. My thanks to my guest, Darylise Lyons. Check out her website, www.darylieslyons.com. You can follow her on Instagram at Demystifying Diversity Podcast, and you can get the book, the workbook, and the podcast wherever you buy books and wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for tuning in to Uncommon Good with Polly Reese. This program is produced in Southwest Philadelphia on the unceded land of the Lenny Lenape tribe and the Black Bottom community. If you enjoyed listening to the show, please support us by leaving us a five-star review and a comment and subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help people find us. Uncommon Good is also available on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at Uncommon Good Pod. Follow us there for closed captioned video content and more goodies. We love, 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 love questions and feedback. You can send us a DM on social media or an email at UncommonGoodPod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, wishing you every uncommon good to do your uncommon good to be the uncommon good.